News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. More than 30,000 people or so have been forced to leave their homes because of these ongoing wildfires in Alberta, already looking like one of the worst years on record for the number of hectares that have burned. And as for the people who have been forced to leave their homes, we're talking about a huge number. This is a very serious situation. Let's get an update now from Global National reporter Neethu Garcha. Hello, Neethu. Hi, Simi. So where are you? What is the situation like in Alberta? Yeah, so I'm about 800 kilometers north of Edmonton in the community of high level right now, uh, standing in front of a donation center as many of the evacuees here continue to rely on the kindness of strangers who've been coming by to drop off what they can. There are an estimated 1,000 evacuees in this small community with a population of about 3,500. They're from multiple communities, including Fox Lake and Rainbow Lake. Uh, Alberta Wildfire says that One of the biggest challenges in this part of the province in terms of the firefight has been the wind and the changing weather conditions. They say more than 70 wildland firefighters have arrived from Quebec and Ontario, and they've been deployed to the areas they're needed most. But provincial officials on Sunday did say a change in weather conditions in southern Alberta has helped firefighters fight the wildfires. They saw some light scattered showers, they said. And that was, I think, a sliver of hope for some of the folks there who are dealing with threats to their communities. Uh, As you mentioned, the latest numbers are that nearly 30,000 Albertans have been forced from their homes. And, Sydney, as evacuation orders were rolling in west of Edmonton over the weekend, the Edmonton Expo Centre had become a home for hundreds of evacuees who are there right now from all over the province. Uh, the town of Edson, uh, other p- parts of Yellowhead County, Parkland County, Drayton Valley, uh, the town of Hinton, uh, that's northeast of Jasper. There's a box door parking lot that's turned into essentially like a campground uh, for evacuees who actually have campers that they were able to park there. And the city of Calgary says it's working with the province to open a reception center there for evacuees later today. Um, so where I am right now in northern Alberta, what we're hearing from local officials and residents, including from nearby Rainbow Lake, which was evacuated on Saturday, that this is unlike anything they've seen, at least in the last decade. Okay, so it really does seem like it is unprecedented for this early in the year, doesn't it, Nithu? Yeah, exactly. And that's what we're hearing from so many people is that part of the problem is that officials say the sap that is on trees this time of year is quite flammable. The weather conditions have been intense and rapidly changing. So Mother Nature is not providing much of a reprieve. And for the community of high level, one of the challenges that we've heard they're experiencing, um, according to town officials, is that for years they've been seeking provincial and federal support to build a dedicated evacuation center while seeing this level of forced uh, evacuation from so many different communities uh, to, to high level is not something they've seen this early in the season. They've had 12 mass evacuations to this community since 2003. So they've been seeking support for a dedicated evacuation centers. So they hope with all this happening during a provincial election campaign that those calls will finally be acted on. Well, that's what I was wondering too. The, there is an election campaign going on. Has this impacted the election, that, that campaigning, of course? Yeah, so we've heard some parties and some candidates here in Alberta say that they will pause their election campaigns um, because of what's happening and how how many communities are dealing with uncertain futures. Others have not and continue to campaign. And we did hear from a spokesperson with Little Red River Cree Nation 
um, which is the overall nation that Fox Lake is a member of. That entire community was evacuated. They've lost what officials say is at least 40 homes and their police station grocery store. We've heard that they appreciate uh, candidates pausing their election campaign, but that overall they feel they haven't received enough support from the provincial government. Wow. And I understand, is the provincial government asking for help from the federal government? That's right. So a provincial state of emergency was declared on Saturday And with that, um, continue ongoing meetings between provincial officials and Ottawa. And with a state of emergency being declared, it gives them power to be able to access emergency funding and additional resources. And we've heard Danielle Smith, um, the premier and uh, candidate running for re-election, that she will be meeting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to determine what the priority resources are that Ottawa could provide, what that could look like, and when they might be deployed. All right, Nitu, thank you so much for the update. No problem, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about your workplace, shall we? We know at this point that workers from the Public Service Alliance of Canada have reached tentative agreements with the government, right? Uh, there's about 150,000 plus that were on strike. Things are slowly you know, getting back to normal. They're going to be voting on their agreement. But here's the thing. doesn't mean that they're all going back happy either. There was a survey conducted among more than 180,000 government employees And what it showed is that many of them are complaining about emotional stress, burnout, job dissatisfaction. And I thought, well, why stop there? It's not just government workers who would say those things about their jobs. I'm sure there's a lot of workers out there in the private sector, too, who would say, hey, this applies to me. Emotional stress, burnout, dissatisfaction, you name it. So if you got paid more, would that solve the problem? Is that really what's going on in our workplaces right now? So joining us now to talk more about this is Eli Sopo, Associate Professor, MBA Faculty of Leadership and People Management at University Canada West. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hi, good morning. So is this the problem, do you think, in workplaces, public and private? Is there a lot of job dissatisfaction out there? There's a, there's a lot of uh, job dissatisfaction. It's a huge thing. We've been studying this for years, and it's really grown over a period of time. Uh, you're right about the survey. It's actually done every uh, couple of years with the federal government, over 180,000 employees, and they ask over 100 questions. And what's what's um, amazing to me, well, not that amazing, is that it's the same thing we find in the private sector as well. You know, money doesn't really buy happiness uh, as much as we might think, and it doesn't buy good service, and it doesn't buy... Uh, an emotional wellness. Now, what's that all about in the workplace? Well, if employees are feeling burnt out and bumped out, bummed out, uh, they're just not going to do an effective a job as possible. What the surveys have shown, this is the federal government, it's a huge survey, but it's the same thing we find in the private sector in, in quite a few companies. Get this list. Too many approval stages, constantly changing priorities, unreasonable deadlines, a high turnover. Some people may be saying, hey, wait a minute, that's my job. <laughs> you know, yeah. lack of stability in my department, over, overly complicated business processes. And one of the, the things that the, the federal survey found, but it's also true in many private sector companies, is an inability to really manage change well. Well, the world is full of change right now, right? It's nothing but change. So when you have these things happening within a workplace, and I was in the federal public service for 20 years myself as a, as a director. What happens there is you're affecting what's called the morale of the workplace, how I feel about the place. You know, there's two things. Job satisfaction. I love my job. I can't wait to get there. And there's morale. How do I actually like being there? Now, ask 
I don't know, you better not ask yourself, but if people listening to this could say, okay, do I like what I'm doing? All right, yeah, I do. But do I actually like the place and how I'm treated? Ah. Uh, not so much. Okay, two different things you're talking about here, yep. right? But uh, right now there seems to be a lot of focus, Eli, on people making more money, right? We talk about inflation. And is is the problem in terms of dealing with the pandemic and the effects of that bigger than that? Like how does an employer fix those other problems you talked about? Well, they should be fixing them. And you, and you can't blame anybody for wanting more money. And you're absolutely dead on with inflation, high interest rates, and on it goes. Employees have been trying, but they have not put enough effort into it. You know, we talk about workplace cultures, and they, 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 uh, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. There are mentorship programs. There are kind of emotional wellness issues, but it's kind of a – they call them the soft skills of a workplace. Well, if they're soft skills, then why are they so hard to actually implement well, yeah, that is the question. So we're, so there sounds to me like a lot of work that managers need to do here. Well, the managers do need to do that kind of work. You know, and again, in a lot of surveys, when we ask employees, how do you like your place? And they say, uh, not so much because workplace conflict, poor communications, this kind of thing. Where does that come from? It comes from actually poor leadership management. And also, where does that come from? Well, it's the people who run the places and in the higher ranks. Now, do they set the tone? They set what's called the culture. How do you do things? What do you get away with? What are you rewarded with? Well, obviously, if you're not really rewarded for keeping people happy in the place, then there's leadership problems there. So this sounds to me like the big challenge then for anybody who's running a business or is a manager these days. What responsibility like, do we as employees have, too? Is it time to look for another job then if we're that unhappy? Well, good luck on that, though. You see what's happening today. But you know what? Here's what happens. It's like it's a, when people are afraid of something, of anything that scares you, we either t- uh, we get into flight, we run away, or we try to fight back, or we freeze You know, on anything. But that happens in the workplace. We can fight back. And if you're in a unionized environment, all right, there you have the power. You can freeze, but, you know, put your head down and say, I'm just going to suck it up because I can't go anywhere here. Or you flee. Is there another job for me? And that's, that is what's happening in some places today where employees are saying, like they did during the pandemic when they came out of it, they said, I don't know if I really like this place. I'm going to look around. And do you think that's what it was? Like, was it the pandemic that brought everything to the forefront? It did. It really, a lot of uh, uh, researchers and others, uh, we know as we've all gone through it, it's, it's almost like it uh, moved us into the future by about 20 years, a fast forward, right? And saying, hey, wait a minute, I've got to look at some of my priorities in life. And it does the workplace have to be like this? Can I do some of this work at home? And that was one of the issues for the federal government and elsewhere, too. It's still an issue, though, isn't it? Sure it is. Sure it is. It's a big issue. And it wasn't resolved with the, with the federal government. They kind of put it to the side and said, we'll talk about it. But that's because it's so darn complicated. You know, it's not every job you could do from home, but some you can. And which ones can you and which ones can't you? But you know what it boils down to? Come on, when I was in the workplace and we, we tried to have people work from home, it was a matter of trust. You know, to have managers say, oh, I don't know, i got to see you or you're not working. Come on now, where's the trust involved in that? And some people are much more productive at home after they don't have to ride on a SkyTrain for an hour and a half to get one way. Well, that's the other thing. It just feels like everything is coming together to like, you know, bring everything to this head where all of the issues, your commute, housing prices, you name it, are making it so that the workplace is even more challenging. Oh, sure. 
sure it is. And you know what? And the mistake a lot of uh, company leaders are making today is saying, wow, the pandemic's over. I can't wait to get back to where we were before. You're never going to go back. This is the thing. You're not going back. It's over. It's finished. You have to move on and look what we've learned from the pandemic and how can we move forward. And that's why when you see results saying companies, all kind of, we're doing surveys right now where com- some workplaces are just they don't want to change. They like it the way we were. We like what we know. We don't want to do things we don't know. And so they're afraid of change. Is that what you're getting from your survey? Is that what you're hearing from businesses? Oh, absolutely. I they're mean, afraid of change? Oh, they, yes, yes. They're afraid of change. Why? People are afraid of change because it's something other they don't know, they can't control, uh, or it actually challenges the status quo. And especially if you're in senior leadership positions. Wait a heck, I'm a leader. I've been here forever. I must know what I'm doing. You're asking me to change? What? To have another look at what I'm doing? <laughs> no, really, seriously. I believe you. There's a lot of resistance to I change from, yeah. from, in workplaces. Yeah, I can I picture that because I can just think of how that is exactly what goes through people's minds. It's like, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, well, of course. And, and to ask me to change, wait a minute. Now it sounds like you think I'm stupid. Did I make mistakes to get here where I am? No, but you have to grow. If you stand still, you won't. You'll be moving backwards as everything else moves forwards. That is so true. Listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you, and uh, good morning. Good morning. That is Eli Sopo, Associate Professor in the MBA Faculty of Leadership and People Management at University Canada West. I'm fairly certain that what he's describing there describes the workplace of a lot of people out there, right? We think, well, I just need a raise, be a raise, and it'll be fine. But you get the raise, and that doesn't mean that the, the job is any better, doesn't mean that you're any happier at work, doesn't make you more satisfied. There's still workplace stress. There is still unhappiness. There are still so many ongoing issues. If you want to weigh in on this one, simi at cknw.com. Is your workplace a great? Like, do you look forward to going to work? I thought that is such a simple question. Do you look forward to going to work? I don't know. Who would say yes to that? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been hearing, of course, about the devastating impact of the wildfires in Alberta. Some, they've never seen anything like what they are seeing right now. Such an early start to the season and really so destructive. In BC, the concern here is not yet for wildfires, but for flooding, because half of our province remains under the threat of flooding. And this is because of the rain. This is the snow melt. This is the warm weather. There has been some relief in certain areas as water levels are starting to recede. But we thought, let's get an update now on the situation. David Campbell is with us, head of the River Forecast Centre here in BC. David, thank you for joining us. Hi, good morning. How would you describe the situation right now in terms of flooding here in the province? Yeah, well, we've certainly seen a lot of pressure, uh, as, as, you, as you say, from the you know, really warm weather that we've had over the past, uh, you know, week and a bit. And that's uh, driven snow melt rates up and then rain over the weekend. So we've, we've definitely seen that putting pressure on uh, the flood scene uh, across the province, particularly through the south interior and uh, the Kootenai and the uh, the Okanagan. Um, we're in a bit, a bit of a holding pattern now. We've, we've seen that rain work its way through for, uh, that we saw uh, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. And so a lot of the rivers are uh, seeing a little bit of stabilization today, which has been really positive news. And uh, we've got, uh, you know, sort of a week ahead that we'll, we'll start to look at the weather and that's coming at us for the potential for ongoing concern uh, later this week. Okay. And so what are those areas that you're really keeping an eye on? 
Yeah, so I mean, obviously, in around the Cache Creek, still, we've got the Bonaparte River that uh, uh, comes along uh, through the side of town, and that's kinda still getting that rain out right now. So we're seeing that rising trend right now uh, through there. So that that's an ongoing concern, particularly as we go through the next uh, couple days here. Um, I think the bigger concern right now is going to be this heat that's starting to build uh, later this week, and we're we're into the time of year, and, and we're seeing this in the snowpack, uh, just a really really rapid melt with uh, the temperatures that we've had, and uh, and that's pushing things quite early. We're probably uh, three weeks earlier you know the type of conditions we typically see late may or early june is is sort of how the melt cycle is going so um we've got through a lot of that mid elevation snow and that uh, has been that risk that we've seen in the okanagan and and uh, parts of the south interior and i think we're going to start to see that transition into the bigger rivers of the province uh, as we go through later this week into next week with uh, things like the thompson river the fraser river higher elevation terrain in the mountains uh, through the kootenays that's going to be the key next risk Okay, so that, how far away do you think that concern is then? A week, 10 days, two weeks? Yeah, I think it's going to start to ramp up. Uh, the, the temperatures we're looking at, uh, starting to see this high pressure uh, system build uh, into next weekend. So uh, the rivers will, sort of the snowmelt is going to rise with that, that hot weather and we'll see those rivers rising. So that will be starting uh, this, this coming weekend, I think will be the next pinch point for uh, potential uh, flood concern. Okay, so you were touched on this a little bit here, but I'm just curious about how unusual this is. Like, I know the wildfires so early in Alberta. Is this flooding really early or has this happened before? You know, we certainly do see uh, flooding this, this, this time of year, um, but certainly in, in terms of the snow melt cycle, it, it really is uh, exceptionally early. Um, and, you know, we, it, we might be on pace for kind of record quick melts or record early melts for uh, the province as a whole. Um, and, and really been driven by the, the hot temperatures that we saw, you know, a week ago. They were you know, eight, eight days or so of uh, five to 10 degrees above normal. So, you know, on any given day, we were, we were hitting temperature records, but I uh, haven't really crunched the numbers to see how uh, unusual it is to have a, a 10 day stretch or an eight, eight day stretch of temperatures that, that are that high. Um, and I think the big concern is that um, the forecasted uh, ridge coming at us is, is even more strong uh, in its forecast. So we could be seeing temperatures that we haven't seen yet this year. And again, likely to hit temp- temperature records as we come into into this weekend. Oof, okay. So, and is this the whole province that we're talking about here, David? Like, is there a, if you live near any kind of river right now over the next couple of weeks, you should probably just keep an eye on that. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's what you know. We're we're in the season now for these snowmelt driven uh, rivers, and so some areas, um, you know, we've melted the snow out now, so uh, we could see improving conditions, and that might be the the, the measure if if your river's already hit its peak and, and over the last you know several days it's it's come down, you, you might be past the worst of it from the snowmelt side of things. Um, but uh, and I think that's going to be the case for a lot of that uh, areas potentially in the in the south interior where um, they don't have as much high elevation terrain so we are you know really melting the snow fast and there's not much uh, snow left so it's going to be shifting a little bit in the areas that that are going to be exposed to risk and and we're kind of moving from that uh, mid elevation terrain uh, plateau terrain through yeah the central and south interior and kind of shifting more to the the higher mountain terrain and the rivers that drain from that so that that includes the big rivers like uh, like the Thompson and like the Fraser River so I think we'll we'll be really coming into to watching those closely oh we will be listen Thank you so much for the update this morning. 
Great. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Since when do we hear about a tax that is going down? Uh, Maybe never? You've heard, of course, about the empty homes tax. This was launched in Vancouver back in 2017. The idea was that it would discourage homes being left empty instead of being rented out. Now, the original percentage here was 3%. But it was scheduled to go up to 5% for 2023. But now it turns out that Vancouver City Council is getting ready to vote on perhaps reversing that increase and keeping it instead at 3%. Joining us now is Lisa Dominato, ABC City Councillor, to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on. What do you think of this idea? Should it still stay at 3%? Yeah, you know, I've taken a really close look at the staff report, and and I agree with staff. Um, The current rate is 3%, as you noted in your opening. And what they're recommending at this time is that we retain that rate. Uh, 5% was a proposal uh, from last term that hadn't been implemented. And some of the rationale uh, coming from staff, which was done in consultation with Ernst & Young uh, Consultancy, was around uh, some of the risk that as you escalate um, that tax rate that you could end up in a spike in false declarations, uh, which at the end of the day, um, you don't want to see. We actually want to see people declare and and pay the taxes need be. But if we see a rise in false declarations, then there's a need for more audit resources and uh, it becomes more complicated. Whereas what we've seen to date is that um, the rate currently has been effective and in fact, We've seen uh, fewer uh, properties uh, retained as vacant and uh, more housing being returned to the market under this scheme. Do we know how much money the empty homes tax generates? Yes. So um, since 2017, it's roughly been $115 million. Uh, we estimate in the 2023 budget uh, $44 million. Uh, so that will be based on the 2022 uh, declaration year. I think we have to remember to the point you made earlier is that this was really to uh, return empty or underutilized properties to the market for long-term homes. It was never intended as a revenue generation. Right. I was just thinking, though, that's a lot of money, $44 million that people are willing to pay. And so your concern is that if you hike the tax and make that price more, people become less willing to pay. Yes, correct. So the assessment from staff is that you see a higher risk of those false declarations and people basically tax evasion, uh, which then requires more resources to audit, follow up. Uh, And I think we have to also remember that um, the regulatory landscape has changed since the city brought in the empty homes tax. Um, We now have a provincial vacancy tax uh, uh, that is set at 2% for foreign owners and 0.5% for Canadian citizens and permanent residents and a two-year ban on foreign ownership in metropolitan areas like Metro Vancouver. So that that landscape has changed. Um, But what we are seeing um, is that uh, we are seeing a reduction in in properties that are deemed vacant. Uh, And so what staff want to do is monitor that over the next year. They're still undertaking uh, the audits for 2022, and they also want to um, assess but the, the decrease of vacant property trend sustains without the impact of COVID. Because, of course, we've just had a number of years of COVID and, and that had an impact on uh, people's ability to move around. Right. OK, so you believe, though, and staff has shown that there there are fewer empty homes out there. 
There are. Our data shows that. We do an annual report every year. It has been trending downward. Um, there's roughly about 4,000 that are exempt um, every year. And, and actually, that's the bigger part of this report um, that hasn't been talked about yet is that um, staff are very much focused on addressing effectiveness and fairness of the empty home tax because, and it dates back to when I was elected in 2018, I consistently heard uh, from residents and, and business owners and, and builders that they were being unduly um, caught in this tax. Uh, and so we've actually got a number of exemptions that are included in this uh, report, which includes uh, if you have a building permit issued in the vacancy tax year, if you've submitted a, a development permit application, a rezoning inquiry application, uh, there's an exemption for medical treatment. This is one of the things we heard uh, because Metro Vancouver, particularly Vancouver, is a hub for medical care. Uh, we had individuals who did have a, a second home to stay in order to access that medical care. So there will be an exemption for that, as well as properties that simply were uninhabitable for some reason. There was a hazardous condition on site or there had been some sort of disaster. And so we make an exemption for that. And finally, um, we heard from builders that we were imposing the empty home tax on standing inventory, so brand new buildings that had, and homes that had never been lived in. So there will be an exemption for that as well. So um, this is about ensuring um, effectiveness, fairness, and transparency of the empty home tax and responding to feedback that we've had over the last number of years. Yeah, you bring up some good points there because we've certainly heard this as well, right? Is that sometimes it was capturing situations that perhaps were not anticipated? We was there a concern, perhaps, that it was becoming a little too bureaucratic? Absolutely. Um, we heard that from individuals who got caught in red tape. Uh, we had people who, for example, might have been out of the country. They missed the notice. Maybe their elderly didn't know about it when the tax was first implemented. It was new for people. They weren't aware of it. Uh, and so certainly it is to address that. And we're also trying to streamline our audit process. We've heard from a number of residents that, while well, they understand the need for an audit system, um, they'd like to see it, it simplified um, because it does require quite a bit of paperwork to, to demonstrate and prove that either you live in your home or that you're renting it out long term. And so our staff are being responsive to that. And I think that's a really important part of, of this report is we've listened, we've heard. And we're taking steps to address some of those challenges and issues that have been surfaced. Right. So now that we are moving past the pandemic and people are starting to kind of move around again, do we have enough, do you think, deterrence in place then to prevent more empty homes from popping up? Uh, you know, I think we do. As I mentioned, we have this layers of regulation now, um, not only the, the city's empty home tax, but also the provincial vacancy tax in place. Uh, we have increased our audits as well, so that number has increased. And uh, But certainly it's something we need to continue to monitor. Uh, it's uh, been an effective tool, um, and we'll see what the outcome is of the 2022 audits later this year. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Simi. Thanks that's, for having me on. That's Lisa Dominato, who's the ABC City Councillor in Vancouver, talking about a staff recommendation. They're going to be voting on this, City Council is, and this is to not go ahead with an increase in the empty homes tax. So it sits at 3%, and it has since it was brought in back in 2017. Now, there was a planned increase to go to 5% this year, uh, and that was brought in, I guess, about a year ago. They decided to do that, so it's supposed to take effect this year. But now staff is recommending, and they did this because they did a report with Ernst & Young Consulting Services, that it shouldn't be go up that quickly, that fast. So they're recommending it stay at 3%. So they're going to be voting on this at Vancouver City Council. It sounds like that means it will stay at 
3%. And remember, this is for properties that are determined or deemed vacant. And they've already been you know, bringing in money based on this tax. There are a lot of people who do choose to pay this tax. So $44 million expected this year. But since um, it came in in 2017 and up to 2022, it's brought in $115 million. And so the other concern was, as Councillor Dominato mentioned, is bring it up to 5%. So it's more money people have to pay. Is that going to be kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back where people decide now I'm going to try to avoid this because now it's too much money. So it's interesting. So what do you think, right? Keep it at 3%. Should it go up to 5%? Uh, there are still quite a few empty homes out there, clearly, from the number of people who are paying this thing. You let me know your thoughts on that. Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. We are launching a new series this week that I am really excited about. We call it Extraordinary British Columbians. We want you to get to know some locals who have made amazing contributions to our province. People who are doing the work maybe behind the scenes that you don't even know about. People that we are all lucky to have as part of our province. So today, our first extraordinary British Columbian. When you go to the grocery store and you need some fresh herbs, some mint, some thyme, some sage maybe, you name it, you've probably seen those little containers of fresh herbs, right? They're everywhere. That company was started out of a garage in Surrey, and now it's across the country. The CEO is Ron Brar, a longtime farming family, also owner, by the way, of the Surrey Eagles, and he joins us now. Ron, thank you for being here this morning. Hey, thanks for having me, Simi. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we love to tell people stories about, you know, people in our community. First of all, how long has your family been in farming? Um, well, my dad uh, came to Canada um, almost uh, 50, 60 years ago and uh, started growing, um, you know, your basic um, vegetables, lettuce and celery and uh, cauliflower. And then, um, you know, the times got uh, really tough in the in the late 80s and 90s and uh and then, uh, of course, um, uh, we uh, we started uh, Evergreen Herbs out of our dad's garage, and uh, in 1996, and um, uh, with uh, with uh, as a family. And then all of a sudden, um, now the company has grown to um, uh, a facility in Cambridge, Ontario, that does all of our Eastern Canada, and then of course uh, British Columbia. And then um, we started a paste facility as well that makes all the salsas and pastes, and um, yeah, and we ship right across uh, Canada and the United States. That's, so. that's amazing. Ron, but there must have been a moment when your dad was like, what do you mean you want to package up herbs in a container and people are going to buy this? Yeah, you know, when we uh, when we first uh, um, started, I said to my dad, I said, you know, um, I think we need to buy a computer and we need to kind of start modernizing our uh, farming. And he was like, you know, appalled that I was going to spend, you know, $5,000 on a computer and a printer and all this other stuff, and he, you know, and, um, and, uh, because, you know, he wanted us to stay focused on more traditional stuff. And of course we, we went the different route and, um, and we started, uh, doing specialized produce and, um, and then from specialized herbs, we went into edible flowers, uh, baby vegetables and, uh, microgreens and a whole host of different varieties of, of products. Uh, which most Canadians enjoy on their um, on their dinner plates, uh, either at a restaurant or uh, buying it from a retail grocery store, and really enjoying um, the meals either at home or at a, at a restaurant. And um, and uh, you know, and that's kind of how it uh, built. Um, and uh, now, yeah. you know, food is our passion, and um, 
we can't get away from it. So, and Ron, where did your ideas come from, though, right? Like to think about doing things like this and then taking those. It's hard, especially when it's a family business to take those yep. next steps. So where did your ideas come from to do all this? So, well, the whole the company actually started in uh, 96. Um, my wife and I, we went to the CPMA and um, and then we began that process of meeting um, customers uh, we had this motto where when I was younger, this gentleman told me, he goes, listen, Ron, you have two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk when you're going to go meet a prospective customer. And, um, and so listening to the needs of the industry is how we adapted our farming practices. Uh, we heard what was being done and then we adapted to what was needed and then all of a sudden, um, we started doing private branding. And then of course it just led from one thing to another. I mean, uh, originally I was going to be a, a police officer. That was my, my hopes and dreams to be a VPD officer. My eyesight at that time held me back. Uh, I went to Kwatlen College to take horticulture, um, an ag program there, and um, I didn't do as well as I thought I would. And the professor actually <laughs> uh, flunked me out and said, uh, what? You know, maybe you should look at it. Yeah, I should do a different profession. And uh, and then in uh, 2003, became Canadian Farmer of the Year. And so, uh, did so, you go you back know, and tell that professor, "Look, I did okay after all." Actually, I got a call from the from uh, Quatlin's, uh, uh program, and they I guess they didn't realize I was a former um, uh, student of theirs, and they asked me to do a lecture to their uh, to their group. And uh, of course, I, I I said yes to it, and uh, I had an opportunity to actually. I thanked that professor. I said, you know, I wanted to thank um, I forgot her name, but uh, but I said that you don't you don't have to be an A student or or to, to succeed in, in in what your passion and dreams are. You just have to have a, a will and a drive and um, and push yourself through. And uh, so true. You know, there was, it, was a, it was a light that kind of went off at that time, and uh, you know, um, and we turned around and, and went forward from that. And and ever since then, you know, I've I've tried to dedicate a lot of time to you know our community as well. Uh, you know, I've got three lovely kids: uh, Simran, my oldest, who just graduated from. Uh, university she's uh you know uh she's engaged now looking to you know get herself uh involved in the family business um in the near future my daughter sage who is a, a phenomenal soccer player played for the vancouver whitecaps uh rex program uh she just graduated from yale university wow. um and uh you know and so uh and then my son who's just turning 19 uh, he plays hockey as well uh and he actually plays with the Surrey eagles uh for 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 my club now but, um, but, you know, the, the Sir Eagles is something that, um, you know, my brother and I had a real passion for in terms of our hockey. We never played it ourselves, but we, we love the sport. And we, we found it that this was going to be a conduit that would allow um, families who can't afford to come to, a, to, to see a, a hockey game to actually come out and uh, watch one. New Canadians, um, you know, we've had so many fans come out this year. The community rallied. The city uh, rallied around the, 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 the team this year. Um, but the most important thing was, was to be able to have a connection between our sponsors and our community. And uh, our, our sponsors this year stepped up and donated funds so that new Canadians and com- Canadians that couldn't afford to come to a hockey game enjoyed watching hockey for the very first time. Oh, that's amazing. And, uh, no, well, it's so it was clear. Just, it's beautiful. It is yeah. beautiful. It's so clear that community is so important to you. I mean, you're you're working there in Surrey. You were raised there. Did you go did you graduate from Lord Tweedsmere? Yes, I did. I was a graduate from Lord Tweedsmere and uh, Cloverdale Junior and uh, I know 
I, I think you're Cloverdale Jr. I am. I'm Cloverdale uh, Jr., not Lord Tweezmer, but everybody in my family graduated from Lord Tweezmer because there's something about growing up out there at that time that really connects you to the community, doesn't it? it doesn't it? Like, I mean, uh, some of my former teachers, that uh, my science teacher that uh, we hadn't seen for so long, um, now is, uh, you know, I realize he's a, a season ticket holder at the Surrey Eagles. Um, you know, um, uh, Mr. Hasty, I don't know if you know him, but... Uh, I remember but, Mr. Uh, Hasty. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, uh, so I see him at every game now. And, uh, you know, and Mr. Hugh, uh, you know, he's part of the Cloverdale Rodeo program. And so the Sir Eagles are getting more involved in, in that programming. And, and so, you know, here's all of the, the past coming together now, you know, to build a better community. And, um, and that's really what the, the hallmark of what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, um, you know, and for me, the other passion is is food security for our country. Um, and I believe that COVID really showed us how vulnerable our country and our province and our city really is. Um, you know, we are we're a northern country. Um, the climate is quite hospitable in many cases. So, you know, I I, I really you know I work with uh, um, local farmers. I try to talk to uh, anyone who would listen that we as a country have to do better and we have to get more younger people involved in agriculture and to build a robust Canadian um, economy on, on agriculture that, that isn't reliant on, on foreign food. Um, and so this is something that, you know, I have a great deal of passion for. Um, and I just feel that we're, we're literally dropping the ball on not educating or getting enough young people involved in in, in agriculture and um, and I and I'm hoping that we can try and change the tide so that we can create a, a much stronger um, local industry uh, of, of food security here so um, so it never stops with you you are always thinking about the next thing aren't you yes uh, <laughs> of course you have to I mean I mean it's a it's a huge responsibility to make sure that our people are well fed right and uh, and so and if you see things that are not right, you want to make sure that uh, those things are um, highlighted and at least the people that can make decisions can see those um, areas and um, right. make sure that they are aware of those areas. Right. Well, so. um, before I let you go, first of all, thank you so much for doing this so we can introduce kind of the work that you do to everybody and tell everybody about you. Any advice for people? You talked about how you don't have to be an A student there, but for someone who really wants to make a contribution to their community and be successful, what would you tell them? Just take small steps. Um, help your neighbor. Help someone that uh, that needs a little bit of support by doing. If everybody just did a little bit, our communities would be rich and thriving so much more than we are today. You know, um, every anything that you see around you that needs to be cleaned up or picked up, or just do the small things and watch how if we just do a little bit together, our entire community can become that much stronger. And um, and that's my advice to every person out there just do the small things and and um and watch your and you know what you'll you'll feel great about yourself as well you'll feel mm-hmm. you'll see that smile on that person and th- that'll make your day so it really will ron thank you so much for your time thank you so uh, much for your you hard for work me. and thanks so much for what you do and uh, i really appreciate the opportunity anytime that is ron brar ron is the ceo of evergreen herbs limited also the owner of the surrey eagles hockey team as well uh now community ownership there really big believer in that anytime you go to the grocery store and you buy one of those little packages the containers that have the fresh herbs in there yeah 
that's that's evergreen herbs. That's Rambar, a longtime farming family from Surrey that are just building more and more community-minded work. One of our extraordinary British Columbians that we're trying to help you get to know kind of the people behind the scenes doing extraordinary things that you may not have heard of. We're going to introduce you to a whole bunch of them over the next two weeks. And that was our first one, Ron Brar.